From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. More than 700,000 people in Colorado could be affected by President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. But lots of unanswered questions remain. This won't necessarily wipe away all of the debt that they have, depending on their Pell Grant status uh, when they were in school, but it will make a pretty significant impact. It's going to make an impact in different ways for different students. Then, a directory that aims to help you locate and support Black businesses in Colorado. From a historical as well as present perspective, Black-owned businesses have been marginalized. If we can get economic power within these Black-owned businesses, that will trickle down into the families of these Black business owners and the people that they employ, whether they're Black, white, brown, or, or whoever. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Finance Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. There are still a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, which he announced last week. What we do know is that some borrowers may qualify for getting up to $20,000 in debt erased, depending on their income and Pell Grant status. Jason Gonzalez is a higher education reporter for Chalkbeat Colorado. He's been looking into what this could mean for people repaying student loans in our state. Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me. In your reporting, roughly how many Coloradans have taken out loans for their education? So this could potentially impact about 770,000 Coloradans across the state. And that doesn't mean that they will for sure be a part of that, but it does look like that's about the roughly the number at this point. And I understand that the average debt for Coloradans is $36,000? Yes, it is. It's uh, quite a high amount for uh, student borrowers. And, and so this won't necessarily wipe away all of the debt that they have, depending on their Pell Grant status uh, when they were in school. But it will make a, a pretty significant impact. Um, it's going to make an impact in different ways for different students. So black students, Hispanic students who took out loans, um, that might not eat into as much of the overall debt that they have because the high averages are much higher than what white students have. So it's really just going to be dependent on that borrower and their individual circumstance. Our race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie recently spoke to Brandon Schaefer, who says for him, this means that most of his debt will be wiped out. This is a huge burden that's been taken off of at least 20 million, by some estimates, Pell Grant recipients across the country. And so if we talk about building an economy for all and moving the state forward, moving the country forward, being able to build generational wealth, this allows us to do that. And I've never had that before. So the economic mobility alone is huge. I can now buy a house. I can now go and do other things. Jason, are you seeing a similar effect for other borrowers? It depends. Um, I talked to a student who 
took out about $300,000 in student loans. And so this is kind of a drop in the bucket for her. Um, some students will see their debt completely wiped away. And exactly like he had to say, I mean, they can look at buying homes or saving for the future and really thinking about um, what's next for them. But it's just going to impact everyone in different ways. And it's going to depend on the individual circumstance because this student loan debt issue is really nuanced. Now, people of color, and you alluded to this, tend to hold higher student debt loads than white borrowers. What impact do you see this as having on them in particular? Overall, and and on average, less of an impact um, across the board. It's just not going to really wipe away that kind of debt that many of those students have. The Biden administration really tabbed this as uh, something that's going to affect students of color the the most because of that 20,000 Pell Grant piece. But will it wipe away the debt of those students entirely? Probably not. And it is important to note that this does not address the record cost of higher education, right? It does not. So over the past 25 years, higher education has increased threefold um, from that time. And in Colorado, it's pretty much the same. A lot of that has to do with state lawmakers who have needed to shift money elsewhere um, as uh, during multiple recessions. And so more of the cost of college has shifted onto students. So this is not going to uh, make a difference for those students into the future. The real question is how do state lawmakers and the federal government go about really reducing the cost of college for students and and making it more um, affordable for across the board? What are you hearing about the process? Like, how would someone go about applying for the student loan forgiveness? We still don't know yet. Um, the Biden administration says they will um, release more information in the coming weeks. So uh, that's something we need to watch and, and see. But I do know this uh, touches almost every uh, federal loan that's out there without exception. So really, there's a um, this is going to really impact students and families because some of those borrowers, mm-hmm. uh, their families took out money for their students. And they have uh, what are called parent plus loans that um, they're they're holding debt for their students. Mm-hmm. So it frees them up um, in some cases to be able to put money into their own family and into their own future retirement, whatever that might be. I understand that a lot of advocates are hoping that this will be an automated process so that there's not a, a gap in people having to apply for the repayment. Yes. So advocates really want this to be as simple as possible for the student borrower, just because uh, if you look at the systems, they're really complicated already. So the less that people have to think about in going through this process, the better for them, just because it's it's the federal government can kind of push a button and figure this all out. But students um, trying to navigate that bureaucracy and the paperwork mm-hmm. of all of this and, and the websites, it just gets really difficult for them. Since the start of the pandemic, federal student loan repayment was put on hold for borrowers, but they still could make payments during the forbearance period. What happens to those people who paid down their loans during that period if this forgiveness program wipes out their remaining debt? Yeah, so they're eligible actually for reimbursement from the federal government at this point. Um, So if they were paying during that pause, there is a chance that they could get their money back. Jason, thank you. Thank you. Jason Gonzalez is a higher education reporter for Chalkbeat, Colorado.
While COVID-19 might seem largely out of mind, we're heading into the third fall of the pandemic. More than half of Colorado residents are vaccinated and boosted, but a lot of others, especially Latinos, are not. CPR health reporter John Daly explains the push to change that disparity. At an event called Global Fest in Aurora, people wait in line for food from vendors as far afield as Nigeria and Vietnam. On a stage, a group of young girls in colorful dresses perform a traditional dance from Mexico. Nearby, COVID-19 shots are going in arms. For two years, this festival was virtual. Now that it's back, the vaccine tent is bustling. A woman named Josefina Cavedo tells me, with the help of a translator, that she just got a shot. Cavedo is 72. She says her husband, Antonio, was unvaccinated and caught the virus. He'd gone to a party. Everyone caught it, she says, and Antonio died. On her phone, she shows me his photo. She says his death convinced her entire family to get vaccinated. Coloradans are all over the map when it comes to getting COVID-19 vaccines. 75% of those over 65 have now gotten two doses plus a booster. But just a little more than half the entire population can say that. And big gaps persist in some groups. Julissa Soto is an independent consultant on Latino healthcare. We, the Latino community in Colorado, we still vaccinated at less than 50%. And even fewer, she says, have boosters. State health department data backs her up. This is not equity. This is not equality. Dr. Steve Federico is concerned about that, too. And he says the picture is growing more complex. It is obviously a very different phase of the pandemic. Federico directs general pediatrics and school and community programs at Denver Health. He says there's better community immunity because so many people have either been vaccinated or caught the virus. And since the timing of those things is variable, the state's entire population isn't susceptible all at once. Well, that's really reassuring. We are, we are less likely to see massive peaks the way we've seen up until now. But Federico says a new troubling variant could arrive at any time, so it's key for people to stay vigilant and when appropriate to get boosters. Another gap is Colorado kids 5 to 11. Just 38 percent have had two vaccine doses. In the next older group, those 12 to 17, just 40 percent have two doses plus a booster. Back at the Global Fest, 14-year-old Jacqueline Morales stands by the vaccine tent wearing a silver crown. She was just in a modeling contest. In this dress, I'm actually wearing um, Chiapas from Mexico. It has intricate embroidered blue, gold, and pink flowers. She tells me why she got a shot. I decided to get it to protect my family from COVID and also to protect myself. Um, um, my family actually had COVID because we didn't get it. The fight to get more people like her vaccinated has grown more multifaceted. Julissa Soto, the health consultant, personally sends out texts to remind people who come to the clinics about their next shot. So it's pushing them. I, I text them. I text uh, everyone who comes here. I get their numbers and then I text them and I say, welcome. One of the people who got one of those texts is 55-year-old Jose Hernandez. He came here for a second booster and says it's... Very important for me, for my community. When I have my 
my shot, especially as for my responsibility for my, my health. And Hernandez takes advantage of another approach here. While the state health department runs the COVID-19 vaccine clinic, Tri-County Health is here too, offering routine vaccines. I'm going to do this side. So Hernandez gets vaccine shots for MMR and varicella. Jose, how does it feel to be taking care of all this stuff all at once? I'm feeling good. I'm very good. Everything is fine. Denver resident Jordan Jefferson shows off his Band-Aid after getting a COVID shot. He'd like more tents like this out in the community. Got to get out in the public more, do more of these kind of events where, where it's free and they feel comfortable and it's a lot of people around. And he says it's a major improvement from going to the doctor's office. I'm John Daly, CPR News. When we come back, what does age have to do with who you vote for? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 21-year-old Salma Rahin is still recovering from the bomb blast she survived as she escaped Afghanistan a year ago. It looks like I'm physically good, but I have a wounded mind. <laughs> the explosion killed Rahin's father. Now she lives in Colorado with her mother and siblings. Meet your Afghan neighbors Thursday and Friday on Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Over the past two administrations, the United States has seen its oldest presidents. Joe Biden is about to turn 80. Donald Trump is 76. A recent poll found a third of Democrats cite age as a reason they'd like a different candidate in 2024. But according to a new study out of CU Boulder, age matters less when people actually fill out their ballots. Its lead author is political science PhD candidate Damon Roberts. He recently spoke about it with my co-host, Ryan Warner. Okay, you found that age matters once someone is actually in office, but less so on Election Day. Why don't we start out with how age affects job approval ratings when someone's already in the job? Explain what you found there. What we found there was that once you were actually in Congress and you were holding office. And and is this specific to Congress? Yes, this was specific to Congress. Got it. What we found was that people rated older politicians lower than they did for their younger politicians. And among young folks, it was the most severe we saw that kind of drop off on age. That is to say, once someone is in office... Their age, I imagine their advanced age, Mm -hmm. right? This is a function of older age? Yes. Yes. Their age matters to people uh, in in how they view the work of that politician. And younger people especially have that sense, huh? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Surprising at all? I think given what we've seen with some of the recent polls and some of the conversations that we've been hearing about Biden potentially being too old, to me, that that wasn't too surprising. Okay. And how do you define, you know, older? What are we talking about? Over 50, over 60, over 70? Yeah, I think it's along a bit of a continuum. But yeah, I would say once you're past kind of about 50 or 60. Now, this does not mean that voters are less likely to cast ballots for older candidates, correct? Right. Yeah. Explain the the difference or the tension there. What we ended up finding was was exactly what you said, which was 
once we asked people whether or not they would want to vote for someone who is older relative to, say, someone that was 23, mm. then we didn't see too many differences there in, in, in reported levels of how much they would support someone. What do you make of that? It, it is a bit of a puzzle that's coming out of our study. And, and what we concluded in the paper was that we think that there's a number of structural factors that might matter there. But we haven't tested any of those hypotheses as of yet. Okay. We'll, we'll get into the structural mm-hmm. issues that you're hinting at right. there. Uh, but it seems that uh, when faced with a choice in the ballot box, age does not become a huge determining factor in who someone votes for. Is that what we can say safely? Right. Okay. Yeah. But once they send that person, if they send that person to office, it starts to taint their view of them. Right. Yeah. It affects their job approval ratings. You talked about this feeling being stronger among younger people. Uh, do you think that's a function of them not seeing their issues and themselves in the work of older candidates, perhaps? Yeah, I, I, I think that's definitely the case. I think one part of it could just be how well they're represented on policy issues, whether or not the candidate is representing issues that they care about. Mm-hmm. And another part of it is, do they represent kind of who they are in a way? Like, can they see themselves in that politician? It's also interesting that we know older people tend to vote more. So I can see how those who send older candidates are fine doing so. And then the general electorate and those who are asked about approval ratings would generally be younger overall. And so that might be a difference that you see. Right. I I think that is definitely possible. One thing that we did do in our analysis was we did split it up by the age and we still did see lower job approval ratings for older members of Congress even among older yes, constituents. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Okay. It's not as if it's erased when a voter hits right. 50. Yeah, it's it's not as it's not as pronounced as it is for younger voters, but it still is there for for older voters. Why was age in politics something you wanted to examine? We often examine things such as gender and race and how people are represented on those dimensions. Mm. And We hadn't seen as much work being done on people's age. Is this ageism? Potentially. Um, I I don't know if it'd be something that I would would refer to as like a prejudice or discrimination. Yeah. Why would you hesitate to say that? I think there's a number of factors that make it difficult for younger people to get involved in politics, specifically to run as as a political candidate. Mm. So is it possible that people uh, feel a certain way about older candidates uh, because they feel that the system favors older folks and not younger folks and younger ideas? Is that what you're getting at? Right. Yeah, I think I think there's a, a preference for candidates that might have a lot more experience. They've had careers beforehand. They're more kind of connected to the community. And so I think those sorts of factors might definitely play a part in that. Well, those are reasons why older candidates would be good, and yet their approval ratings, as you say, are lower. Right. And that's kind of the the confusing part about it is we're not entirely sure whether or not that's because of voters or if what ends up happening is we see some structural factors kind of play in there. So Yeah, what do you mean by that? One thing that may occur is 
when a political candidate is running for a primary, and those primaries are often within party contests. Mm -hmm. One thing that may occur is that donations, support, volunteering, a variety of different resources may kind of go towards these older candidates because they have more experience. And that increases the party's chance of winning in a general election. That's compared to a younger candidate who may be a bit more risky as to whether or not they're they're going to win in the general election. So money follows age to some extent, or at least experience. Potentially, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think experience is definitely a, a big part of it. But I'm not seeing how that connects then to people's uh, sense of older candidates once they get into office. When it's in a primary contest, you've got... A, a certain type of voter. These are people that are really politically engaged, mm. things like that. And so they may be much more partisan. So their concerns may be about, can we win the general election with this particular candidate? And so once the the older candidate then gets through the primary, probably because they're seen as more electable, then what ends up happening is that they then go into the general election, attain office, mm. and then... People start to sour. And, yeah, and then everyone kind of sours because they're not the ones that were choosing them in the primary election. I see. So the system itself, uh, which anoints candidates, uh, may have that age bias. And then that, I don't know if I would call it resentment, uh, develops once they arrive. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's a good way to summarize it. What does this tell us or what does this tell you about how the system is set up? So while that's my suspicion, I think I think it would indicate that the system definitely prefers the status quo. And I think political polarization and, and this division among people has made it where the system can be entrenched in in those sorts of ways. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, of course, uh, President Trump, the second oldest president, you know, was hardly an establishment candidate. Mm-hmm. So age does not always mean that someone is entrenched, you know, in a traditional democratic systems. Exactly. And I think with Trump, there were a lot of other things, uh, a lot of other factors that were kind of at play with his candidacy. Are are there any takeaways or changes that you hope come from shedding light on this? Yeah. So to me, what I think is most interesting is that that there still is that puzzle as to why there's that disconnect there. And so to me, I hope that that disconnect can be examined by other scholars to see what sort of structural factors are, are causing that disconnect. And then also for... Uh, the public to be aware of this sort of thing so that when they're making their own decisions, when they're deciding whether or not they want to get involved with a campaign and and find other ways to participate in politics, they can keep those sorts of things in mind. Well, Damon, before we go, I want to say that this prompted me to look up the youngest president. Do you know who the youngest president was? I do not know. Uh, I didn't either. Teddy Roosevelt oh. at 42 after the assassination of William McKinley in 1901. It's funny to talk about 42 as the very youngest, you know? Yeah, that is, I think that is pretty interesting. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Damon Roberts is a political science PhD candidate at the University of Colorado Boulder. 
He's the lead author of a study looking at age and politics and how people vote. He spoke with my co-host, Ryan Warner. When we come back, increasing support for Black-owned businesses here in the Rocky Mountain State. I'm Shonda Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's largest recorded hailstone weighed more than half a pound. It was nearly five inches across, about the size of a softball. That whopper landed in Bethune near the Kansas border in August 2019. Hailstones form when thunderstorm updrafts sweep raindrops up into very cold layers of the atmosphere and freeze. When the hailstones get too heavy, they fall to earth. In most places, as hail falls, it melts completely or into smaller pieces before it hits the ground. But at Colorado's altitudes, hail doesn't have much time to melt before landing, and our thinner air means it falls faster. Insurance numbers show the state had the country's second highest number of hail claims behind Texas. It's one reason the Front Range and High Plains are known as the hail capital of North America. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Dazzle Jazz in Denver. The year 2020 is remembered by many as a year of racial unrest in America, but also one steeped in racial reckoning. It prompted all sorts of conversations about inequities in our society and how we all could become more inclusive and supportive of the black community, including economically. One native Denverite is doing his part to help Coloradans do just that. B.J. Joyce is an East High School grad who grew up in the communities of Five Points and Curtis Park. He is the president, owner, and CEO of Black Biz Colorado, which he calls the go-to source for people trying to find and support Black businesses here. He says we all can do our part to help Black businesses not only survive, but also thrive. Welcome, BJ. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. So August is National Black Business Month. Can you give us a sense of what the picture is like for Black business owners in Colorado? Yeah, definitely. So the the picture is great. I mean, there's a plenty of opportunity for Black businesses to uh, thrive in uh, today's marketplace with the adaptations of technology and a renewed sense of support from our total community across Colorado. Black businesses have a great opportunity to provide products and services across a wide spectrum of industries for any and everyone to participate in and to uh, get quality products and services themselves. Black Biz Colorado, what is it and how does it work? Yeah, so Black Biz Colorado um, essentially is uh, a website directory at blackbizcolorado.com. It's an opportunity for Black-owned businesses to be found by the masses all across Colorado and even beyond for visitors who are coming here as well to uh, find businesses that, again, span a variety of industries from engineering to telephone and communications to food service uh, and beauty supplies and everything in between. So it's an aggregate source uh, that has nearly 900 Black-owned businesses across the state of Colorado that are plugged into and ready to be found right now by any and everyone. So how does it work? So essentially, if you're looking for a product or service, for instance, uh, a county, you would just go to blackbizcolorado.com and uh, select either 
the business and professional services or a specific category that you're looking for in this example, accounting, or you can type that into the search bar, similar to any um, search engine type search um, and for what you're looking for, and then find businesses that are represent that category that you can pick from. And so a variety will be listed and you can go through, you can see different reviews of businesses that are there. You can see the different types of services that they offer, um, locations throughout the state, as well as uh, their, their contact information and their website. You can even communicate directly to those businesses through the website as well. So you can have a direct communication link asking for or about their products and services that you're looking for. Yeah, I've had a chance to look at the site. I noticed there are food businesses, website developers, tax professionals, people selling clothes, and as you mentioned, beauty supplies, and even down to electricians and pest control. I also checked out your Facebook page, and I noticed that you have 18,000 followers. Yeah, we have an extensive community. Um, again, it's actually almost 19,000 as of uh, as of right now, close to 19,000 people who are participating in that Facebook group. Um, but really, it's a it's an, a way for a lot of our businesses to remarket to those folks who are who are in there for free at no cost. And the black owned businesses uh, themselves on our website are able to list for free. So there's no charge to any of them as as a way for them to uh, get this recognition without any barriers um, that could exist for them to to be found by, again, any and everybody worldwide. You know, obviously, we're targeting Colorado Black-owned businesses, but we want anybody who's looking in the state of Colorado to actually support Black-owned businesses to find them. And how does a business sign up? It's real easy. They just go to blackbizcolorado.com. Right there on the homepage, we have a join now button and they can click that, start the process by filling out their uh, name and contact information, everything with the business. And then they'll go through an approval process that we look for just to ensure that everything is on the up and up from from a business standpoint. We don't want any robots uh, listing themselves on our website. So uh, we go through that approval process. And then after uh, that approval process, they get listed. Usually it takes them about three to five minutes, depending on how much information they want to fill out in one setting. But they're able to put pictures, video, about me um, sections, contact information, their services, uh, business hours, payment methods that they take. They even can put you know, different um, references from past customers on, on their profile as well for people to select. So um, again, the whole process takes about three to five minutes for them to do. And then they're usually um, approved within 24 to 48 hours uh, and fully listed. Why is it important in your view to support Black businesses? Well, from a historical as well as present perspective, uh, Black-owned businesses have been marginalized. Um, so in order to, to help them not be um, marginalized anymore and to support and uplift the Black community so that they can stand on their own two feet, essentially, if we can get economic power within these Black-owned businesses, that will trickle down into the families of these Black business owners and the people that they employ, whether they're Black, white, brown, or, or whoever that they employ, they'll be able to grow, they'll be able to scale, right? And they'll be able to uh, provide an economic base for the Black community and, and the employees that they serve, which ultimately will help to provide uh, an income base that the Black community can build upon and solve its own problems and issues uh, within this world. 
again, we're looking at, uh, you know, uh, a day and age where we see constantly in the media where black people have been marginalized uh, within the community and uh, everyone looks at it. Doesn't matter if you're, you're, you're black or you're brown or you're white, the entire community, right, looks at how can we help the black community be better? And this is one way to do it through economics. If you have uh, money within the community, they can then buy the changes that they wanna see. And that's what we're trying to do is be able to provide an opportunity for these businesses to be found, to have economic uh, influence poured into them and then to build uh, the community themselves. What are some of the challenges you face with building this platform? Do you get a lot of pushback from people who just don't get it, don't really value what you're doing? Um, actually, there, there's quite a few people who really do value uh, what we're doing. They, they see it as, as a need, as this is something that's a long time coming, something that they feel is very valuable. Um, the pushback, rather, or the challenges that we see is really just the exposure of getting it out to more people and then having those people then start using it, right? Um, because again, you have to build that habit. You have to build the awareness um, so that they can build that habit. So that's really been our challenge is getting more people to understand that it exists, that it's out there, and then utilizing it. When anybody thinks of um, any kind of business that they're going to spend money at, think of spending it at a Black-owned business. What are some of the challenges that you're seeing with these Black businesses? Uh, a lot of the challenges, again, is uh, kind of goes back to exposure, right? Is that they haven't had the exposure. People don't know that they're out there, where they're at, even uh, just within their, their local area, within their, you know, their four or five block radius of their shop or their existence. Many people don't know where they're at. I understand that the directory had somewhat of a surge in 2020 during the pandemic shutdowns and mm -hmm. the racial unrest following the murder of George Floyd. Why do you think there was such interest at that time? Well, there's a lot of interest because people were trying to figure out how can I participate in helping the Black community, right? Um, all, all people were. All different types of people were looking to do that. And so it, we got a real big boost out of that, unfortunately, out of tragedy. But out of that tragedy came a boost for these businesses because people wanted to, wanted to help. They wanted to support. And so they recognized that, hey, if I buy from this Black-owned business, that's something that I can do to give back, to help support that community um, versus trying to figure out you know, a number of different ways to do it. It was something that they knew that they could have an impact in at that point. So that's what helped us. Has that interest dwindled since then? Oh, most definitely. And, and that's, that's probably the unfortunate side of things is that people were encouraged and wanted to do something in that moment. But it's not just you know, the one-time participation in that, it's the continued efforts that are needed. And unfortunately, yes, uh, that has waned uh, over time. And it, it's just, again, us trying to uh, reignite um, that support uh, on a daily basis then for people and keep that at the forefront of people's minds. Not necessarily tragedy, but uh, we want to make sure that people understand that the support is continually needed, right? I mean, for, for example, you don't eat, you know, just one time a day and never eat ever again. You constantly eat to fuel the body. That's what needs to happen in the Black business community. They constantly need an influx of people 
buying from them, their products, their services to maintain and to survive. I'm speaking with BJ Joyce, a Denver native who helms BlackBizColorado.com, an online directory that allows anyone to locate and support a Black business based in Colorado. Now that we've gotten the backstory, let's rope into the discussion a Black business owner here in Colorado. Marlon Wells is the owner of Artistic Apparel Graphics and Science in Aurora, and his business is featured on the directory. Welcome, Marlon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what's your experience been like being on the Black Biz Colorado directory? So it's been pretty good. We've gotten quite a few people that have called, come by, uh, and found us based on the, the Black Biz Colorado directory. So we've gotten business from it. So it's, it's been a great experience. I've actually personally had a chance to find other businesses on the site as well and been able to patronize those businesses too. So it's, it's worked both ways and it's been pretty good. Hmm. So paying it forward, huh? <laughs> trying to, trying to. I mean, you know, people a lot of times will think about being intentional about supporting black businesses, but then don't really have, you know, a convenient way to, to do that. So, you know, they bump into businesses here and there, but uh, this is a little more convenient where you can, you know, have a need, go on the site, find where you can fill that need and then, you know, find a business to be able to actually support. So it does work pretty well that way. Yeah, I think that there uh, clearly, as as BJ asserted, you know, been a disconnect between certain people desiring to support Black businesses, but really not knowing where to start. And um, and as a person myself who moved here from Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> which we jokingly refer to as Wakanda, it was very <laughs> jarring <laughs> moving to Colorado, where you know there's a significantly smaller number of Black people here in the state. So it really was um, different to figure out, you know, if you wanted to support, you know, a Black business or a woman-owned business, all those things, you really have to kind of be connected to learn more about it. So why do you think supporting Black businesses is so important? I think it's important, um, one, because I own a Black business, but also because, um, again, just, you know, to echo what BJ said, uh, historically, you know, we've been, as Black business owners or whatever, it's been more difficult to get the support, to thrive, and to, you know, continue to do business just because of, you know, the history of, of, of the way, you know, there have been barriers in place that Black businesses have had to, to hurdle. So, you know, it takes a little bit more effort that's concerted in order for Black businesses to survive and to thrive and really for, you know, even for people to support black businesses, it just, you know, you got to be extra mindful of it and, and do a little more in order to make sure that it happens. You mentioned hurdles. What are some of the challenges you feel that black businesses are facing nationally and here in Colorado? Um, I think, um, you know, the, some of the financial support that there is needed for a business to get off the ground and get started and get, you know, really going uh, is one of the major hurdles. You know, you think about business and getting into business and uh, what most people think of that is, you know, you go out, you get a, you know, put a business plan together, you go get a business loan, you know, you have some capital to get a, a business started, but that has just been historically difficult for black businesses to access that capital. That's one of the major hurdles uh, in, in getting into business. So, you know, a lot of times it's personal finances or retirement finances or even credit that black businesses will use in order to, to get into business if they really want to, you know, it's really hard to do it the traditional way uh, because we don't have that access to capital, you know, historically that 
other small businesses or other, you know, non-minority owned businesses have. Have you had any pushback as a result of identifying yourself as a black owned business? Um, not really. Um, and I think that's because we don't really like inherently identify ourselves as a black business through, you know, different uh, marketing channels. I mean, obviously being listed on Black Biz Colorado does identify us as a black business. Uh, but otherwise, you know, we're artistic apparel, graphics and signs and anybody can find us. You know, we get a lot of variety in the number of people that do come by and support us and uh, use our services. So, I mean, I think it, it helps to, you know, just be out there and be able to be found by a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. So what do you think about this directory and what it's doing in Colorado? Well, I think it's good. Um, you know, I like I like the growth that I've seen personally with it, with the number of su- subscribers. Um, you know, I've tried to get the word out myself and, you know, just tell people how easy it is to get on there. You know, I've seen a number of other attempts at it, whether in local areas or, you know, on a national basis, but it's something that is hugely necessary. You know, everyone wants to jump on Google in order to find what they need. And then again, like I said, and like, you know, BJ said, and what you've said as well, people want to support Black business. They know that that extra support is needed. So, you know, what better opportunity for that? than to have a Google of black businesses where, you know, you need something, you can jump on there and find it. So, I mean, I think there's a huge need for it. I'm glad to see that it's growing. And I think it's something that, you know, needs to be networked and tied in nationally so that you can get on and find a black business anywhere that you, you know, would want to support one. So I think it's been good. BJ, let's bring you back into the conversation. So what's your vision for Black Biz Colorado? What's your dream? My dream is that uh, everyone from coast to coast across America would tie into a local Black business directory like BlackBizColorado.com and really support the Black business community and help them to build the next Amazon, the next Facebook, the next Microsoft, the next Apple, because these don't have to be white-only institutions or whatever. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of success. There's a lot of um, intelligence behind the black business community, and they just need a they just need a chance. They need an opportunity by the the public at large to get going and to really have the the economic support of the total community, uh, so that they can build, they can grow, they can scale. It doesn't have to be, you know, just, uh, you know, somebody doing hair and being a sole proprietor and, and, a, and an owner operator. These black businesses can be as successful as any other business uh, out there. And so my, my vision, my, my hope, uh, my dream for that is that we will see essentially an uprising and uptaking by the community to support these Black-owned businesses and really give them the chance that they haven't had in this country since the end of slavery. And so um, I would like to see them grow to survive and to thrive nationally and build an economic base for the Black community here in America that makes them a competitive and respective community across the entire globe. BJ and Marlon, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
BJ Joyce is the president, owner, and CEO of BlackBizColorado.com, an online directory that helps people find and support Black businesses in Colorado. We were also joined by business owner Marlon Wells, whose printing and design business, Artistic Apparel Graphics and Signs in Aurora, is featured on the site. August is National Black Business Month. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. News stories don't wait to unfold. They just happen. And when they do, no matter where you are, CPR News helps you stay connected. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. They work alongside some of the most rich and famous people in the world, but no one is lining up to get their autograph. They work long hours in the hot sun, often while getting booed and yelled at. They're umpires, the baseball fans' favorite punching bags. It can be a miserable job, especially for youth baseball officials, so why do it? CPR's Vic Vela recently asked aspiring umpires that very question for NPR's Here and Now. They're gonna put me in the movies They're gonna make the big star out of me Buck Owens sang about how he could play the role of a sad and lonely guy in a movie because he already plays the part so well. And all I gotta do is act naturally And there's no sadder or lonelier job in baseball than being an umpire. No one's there to see you, and you get all kinds of grief. If there's a baseball game happening somewhere, an umpire is getting booed. It's just a fact of life. And that dynamic, as old as the game itself, has long been etched into popular culture. Like in the 1950 movie amazingly titled Kill the Umpire. The man was safe a mile. What are you trying to give us? Some can't you see? He was safe a mile. Get dresses, you robber! Kill the umpire! Kill the umpire! And sometimes movies portray umpires as totally inept. Like this classic scene from the 1988 comedy The Naked Gun, where an umpire gets into an argument with another umpire. So umpires face an uphill battle in getting the respect they deserve. That's something 20-year-old Grant Johnson of Little Rock, Arkansas knows all about. He umpires at the high school level. Parents yell at you, they'll call you whatever they want because they don't care. At the end of the day, they're not going to see you. They, they let their mind free and their tongue loose and just say what they want. Get set! Roll it! Johnson was one of more than 100 attendees of a recent umpire clinic held at Coors Field in Denver where they received free training from former Major League Baseball umpires. The league holds a handful of events like these every summer to try to get more umpires on the professional baseball path. But like any job, you don't start at the top. To get there, you likely have to start anywhere from little league to high school where fan behavior can be the worst. I just think we've become a brasher, louder, uh, less civil society, and it plays out at sporting events. That's Barry Mano, who heads the National Association of Sports Officials. 
He says youth and high school sports face an officiating crisis because more and more referees and umpires are quitting because they're tired of dealing with unruly coaches, parents, and fans. We're getting at the National Association of Sports Officials a report of a physical assault almost daily. That was unheard of before. Then bad behavior makes headlines. A few years ago in Lakewood, Colorado, a fight broke out among parents who were angry over a call made by a 13-year-old umpire in a game where the players were just seven years old. And earlier this year in Abilene, Texas, an umpire had to go to the hospital after a coach shoved him to the ground during a game. Dale Scott is a retired Major League Baseball umpire. It just takes away from the joy of these kids trying to play a freaking game. One of the reasons we're, we're so uh, short on officials because the older guys are retiring or are leaving the field. And we're not getting that uh, recruitment of younger officials to, you know, that'll have years of work ahead of them because they quit. They can't handle it. And when coaches and fans act that way, it takes a toll on the players. Giuliano Pinelli plays baseball for Legacy High School in Broomfield, Colorado. I mean, come on. These guys are getting paid not that much to help us out, and uh, we wouldn't be playing without them. But, uh, you know, everybody makes mistakes. It's calls. That's why they're there. I mean, to get better, really. First base umpire, move up a little. There you go. Back at the umpire clinic in Denver, longtime Major League Baseball umpire Ed Rapuano tries to pump a little encouragement into folks who are there for his expertise. You have to be thick-skinned. I mean, you're going to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes, you know, in, in all facets of life. When you're officiating baseball uh, it's a game and if you start treating it like a game and having fun your judgment your reactions are going to be a lot better than if you think you know it's not a life or death situation Twenty-year-old Grant Johnson who we heard from earlier says he refuses to let a few bad experiences with fans and parents take away from his dream of becoming a big league umpire I've been playing since I was four years old, just a passion for the sport. People can say whatever they want to me, that's fine with me, it won't change my love for the game. 18-year-old Zai Meneke feels the same way. Do you want to keep doing this? Oh yeah, for sure. How I'm, far do you want to go? I want to umpire a game here. Uh, being on this field already at Course Field is, I'm already, I've smiled, I've like secretly taken pictures already. But I guess a goal of mine would be to umpire a game here at Course Field. Just get to the majors one day, I don't care if it's like first for one game. Well, I'll bet you I'm a gonna be a big star. Might win an Oscar, you can't never tell. And umpires like Meneke hope that fans can cut them a little slack so they could feel a little less sad and lonely while they're trying to do their jobs. For Here and Now, I'm Vic Vella. Well, I hope you come see me in the movie. Then I know that you will plainly see Biggest fool that's ever hit the big time And all I gotta do is act naturally And we've got some great photos from Coors Field to go with this story. Check them out at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC. But I won't need rehearsing. All I'll have to do is act naturally. Well, I'll bet you.